Amen. Well, if you'll turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I hope you're not bored with that. We read that a lot. In the, in the last month, we've read it a lot, last couple months, and I, I believe there's a reason for it. You know, sometimes it's tough to convince people that you really do have other things to say. I mean, you know, as a, as a pastor, I, I do my own personal study just like you do, read a whole bunch of different things in my Bible, pray about different things, learn different things. But there are seasons in, our, in, in, in the body of Christ, there are seasons in, in churches where God uh, brings you back to certain points over and over again so we can really study them through, so we can really learn them. And I believe that now is a season where God is preparing us for great harvest. Now, we talked about harvest in the sense, um, as uh, 2 Corinthians 9 calls giving and receiving, calls that uh, sowing and reaping, sowing and harvest. But, you know, we're going to talk about it in the sense that John 4 talks about, as Jesus said, when he, when he did talk about the Lord of the harvest. Praise God, he's the Lord of the harvest in every area. But tonight we're going to talk about what Jesus talked about, Jesus being the Lord of the, God being the Lord of the harvest. And that was the harvest of souls. Because in John 4, when Jesus uh, sees the entire city, in this Samaritan city, sees the entire city coming to him, and the disciples are worried about food, the disciples are wor- worried about earthly things, are worried about natural things, Jesus is excited about something else. You recall the disciples say, you know, do you, do you need some food, man? I mean, we've, we... Do you need something? You look, you, we haven't eaten for a while. They're trying to be good ministry of helps. They're trying to be good, um, you know, assistants and uh, make sure that Jesus is fed. But he's so excited about a whole city that he's not hungry for food that we'd, that we'd be hungry for. He says, I've got food you don't know about. And at that point, they think he's hidden a Snickers bar somewhere in his clothes. And they say, did someone sneak him some food? They didn't say sneak him. They said, did someone give him some food? But I'm sure that was the implication. Did somebody sneak him some food and didn't even offer it to me? Who gave this guy food? And he says, no, no, that's not what I'm talking about. My food is to do the will of the one who sent me and to accomplish. That means to carry out his work. Now, what I love about that is because I start to think about what that means to him. What does that mean to Jesus? Does he mean I just get so excited that I forget about lunch? Or does it mean something deeper when he says, my food? What does food do for us? Gives us energy. It sustains us. It's our source of life in a lot of areas. If we don't have food, we die. And to Jesus, my food, my energy, my life. Hey, food is a pleasurable thing as well. The thing that makes me happy. The thing I perhaps even crave is to do the will of the Lord and to accomplish his work. Now, what I love I've already said what I love about that, but I'll tell you another thing I love about that. (laughs) I have a lot of love for that chapter. The other thing I love about that is that Jesus says to accomplish his work. And to me, that speaks of carrying something out and completing it. To accomplish something means it gets done. It doesn't mean you just simply um, get it half done. It It doesn't mean you get cut short. It means you finish it. And that means that Jesus knew he would accomplish what God had sent him to do. Now, I know we have that same call in our life. We have that same ministry. We have that same hope that we can accomplish his work. We can accomplish what God has set us here to do. We can accomplish what he created you to do. And that's a wonderful thing. You know, a lot of people talk when somebody dies. We talk about whether they finish their course or not. I've come to think of it differently than that. That comes from, of course, when Paul said, I finished the course. 
So we often go, did they finish their course? Listen, they finished their, their course. They're not running it anymore. But it's easier to understand when you think of it as this. We're not all running separate races. You may say, well, we kind of are. We, we compete to win. But really, in the grand scheme of things, this is not your race, your race, your race. It's more of a relay race. In Hebrews, it talks about that. It says, if we don't finish our part of the race, they're not finished. It talks about the cloud of witness and says, without us, they would not be perfected. In other words, they wouldn't be completed. Their race doesn't get finished unless we finish. We're the last runners in that race. So you say, well, did somebody finish their course? Well, maybe you're finishing their course for them. Maybe they finished their leg of the course, they handed off the baton, and now you run with it. And so you don't need to say, well, whose baton did I get? You got Jesus' baton. That's the one you've got. That's the one you run with. You run with his baton. You don't have to say, I want, I want John G. Lake's anointing. Why don't you just settle for Jesus' anointing? Wasn't that really good? Oh, well, you know what? I hung out. I, I, I did some plumbing so I could get Smith Wigglesworth's anointing. You know what? Jesus has got all the anointing you need. He gave you his ministry. He gave you his call. He gave you his spirit. There's nothing else you need. Thank God for those men of faith that we can look at and be inspired by and, and say, Lord, I just want to I want to catch some of what they got, but I don't want to catch it from them. I want to catch it from him. We thank God. We know ministries can impart things. The scripture talks about that. An apostle coming and saying, I've been given something to give to you. We know that. But ultimately, that's from Jesus. And so if we say, I want the same anointing that Jesus walked in, you're not being arrogant. You're fulfilling his ministry. And that's what he said you were meant to do. In, a, in a, accordance with that, let's go to 2 Corinthians 5. Like I said, we've talked about this a lot, but it is one of those chapters that you can talk about a lot and not get done. And uh, in the last uh, three weeks, we had one week where we had a guest speaker, but in the last two where we had a normal Wednesday night, we talked about the purity of the gospel and the purity of a heart that can receive and preach the gospel. Um, I think the gospel has become so much more beautiful to me um, every year, every day that goes by. And I know that sounds cliche to say, but it's real to me. Um, in fact, in the past few months, it's almost like a, there's been an awakening in my own life. And this is a cool thing because you hear the gospel, you know the gospel, but you have to stay in love with it. You have to realize it's good news. That's the difference between feeling tortured when you're about to go talk to somebody about Jesus and feeling delight. You'll feel tortured. If you really don't believe this is good news, it's not fun to share. It's kind of like what Pastor Brownie was saying about Kelly. If you really don't believe it's good news, you're not going to look forward to it. But if you really believe it's as good as it is, even half as good as it is, you're going to be excited. If I said to you, come on, we're going to Lloyd Mall. We're going to pass out million-dollar checks. Would you go, oh, it's so embarrassing. I don't know. What will people think? They'll be happy. They know what's good for them. Now, some of them will go, what's the catch? I don't know. You're trying to sell me something. Yeah, sure, there'll be those. But ultimately, it's good news. How much more is this than a million-dollar check? I mean, this is the best news in the world. A million-dollar check looks like a slap in the face compared to the gospel. So when you believe it's good, you want to share it. You don't have to force yourself. Now, maybe you felt like you had to force yourself. Maybe you're a shy person, naturally. But 
with the Spirit of God, no one's shy anymore. If you'll just step out and, and step past your fear and your intimidation and, and everything that tries to say to you, you're not good enough to talk to these people, you're not good enough, you don't know enough, you don't have enough answers, and you'll just let Jesus be Jesus through you, the gospel will preach itself. Jesus is beautiful enough that you can hold him up and the world will love him. Now, some will reject him, but they rejected him back then too. They rejected him in his own lifetime. So don't feel that you, you just failed. May, you know, at least give them the chance to accept or reject the chief cornerstone. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we're not going to read the whole chapter because like I said, we've read it so many times. We're going to just use it as a jumping off point tonight. 2 Corinthians 5.11 says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God. That means we're uncovered before God. We're, we're shown, we're revealed before God. And I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. We are not again committing ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Huge thought, right? The love of Christ controls us. Everything we think, everything we do, the actions we take, the decisions we make, is because of the love of Christ. The reason we don't stop when we're beat, the reason we don't stop when we're rejected, the reason we don't stop when people lie about us, as the apostles in this very book have said many times, people are lying about them. People are spreading rumors about Paul. They're trying to get him kicked out. They're trying to get him replaced. And he says, the love of Christ controls us. We do what we do because of the love of Christ. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves. So even though he died for all, not everybody lives, right? He died for all, but then it says, so that they who live. So that, that means that not everybody on the earth is alive right now. Now that sounds weird, doesn't it? What? Spiritually, which is what counts, not everybody's walking around alive. Which we know as believers, there's no death. Once you receive Jesus, you've died the last death you'll ever die. You are alive eternally. And that's what we're telling the world about is eternal life. That's what we have to offer is eternal life, is life from the dead, being resurrected. That's a great thing. Here's what it says. He died for all that they who live might no longer live for themselves. Who are we going to live for then? But for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Thank God. We often talk about how Jesus died for you. Thank God he rose for you too. Because had he only died for you, That'd only be part of the process. But since he rose for you, you partake in his life. The scripture says that we've been baptized. That means soaked, immersed, identified with his death. And it says if we've been baptized into his death, we've also been baptized into his life. If we died with him, we've been raised with him. And the reason is so that we may have that resurrection life so that we may walk in newness of life. And I love the thought of walking around in newness of life, as if life is always fresh, as if life is always actually life. It's alive, it's new, it's, it's everyday, everyday beautiful. It's, it's, it's because we're walking in the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. 
The moment, here's the cool thing, the moment you got born again, that wasn't the only moment of resurrection in your life. Every moment is a moment of resurrection. The same life that got you up from the dead is the same life that's coursing through you every day. That power that got you up from the grave did not just be there. It wasn't just there for that one day to get you out of the grave. It's constantly there. If you'll allow it to work in your life, you'll walk around as if you're fresh from the dead. You'll walk around if you just just in that resurrection power, in that fresh life. It's not a stagnant well. It's not a jacuzzi of life, right, that just kind of recycles. I don't mean to gross you out, but, you know. We, we've all sat in jacuzzis and thought, how many people have sat in here before me? It's not a jacuzzi. It's a river. It's a spring of life. What does he say? He who drinks of me, out of his innermost will flow rivers of living water. Thank God it's always new. You don't have to recycle the experiences you had 20 years ago. You don't have to recycle the intimate times you had with Jesus when you were on fire. You can be on fire continually. You can walk in a continual stage of new and fresh life that, thank God for the testimonies. Tell the testimony of you 20 years ago. That's probably an awesome testimony that the world needs to hear. Don't ever get ashamed of it. But you should also be able to say, you know what happened this morning? I woke up this morning. And let me tell you, God is so good. Here's what it says. Therefore... Because of this, because he died and rose again on our behalf, because uh, we've all died and now we who live no longer live for ourselves. From now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, not you, not you, not myself. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold. What does behold mean? To look at, gaze at. He doesn't say gaze at the old things that have passed away, looking longingly at what you used to be, or even spending all your time thinking about where God has brought you from, and oh boy, was I a lousy person. Oh my goodness. You know, you can, you can think about that every now and then, and, and, and thank God. God, thank you for bringing me out of the mud. Thank you for bringing me out of the mire. But that's not what you're supposed to meditate on the rest of your life, who I used to be. Because here's what he says to behold. Here's what you're supposed to look at. New things have come. That God has put new things in your life that replace the old things. That the old things that used to drive you, motivate you, excite you, have been replaced by his life. So you have new things in you. Now he says, now all these things, all these new things that God put in you. And what did he put them in you for? For the kingdom. Because you're a useful vessel now. You're somebody he can use. You're somebody he wants to use. You're somebody that is now purified for his use. You're somebody who has, has now been qualified through him to be used. He says, all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. Now, what does that mean? That means he brought us back. He reconciled us to himself. He reunited us with himself. Now, you've got to think that's an awesome thought. That the problem with humanity is that we've been separated through sin from God. Now, here's what he did through Christ. He brought us back. Can we live life every day saying, I've been reconciled to God? Like, I've been brought back 
one with him. How can life be boring when you're one with God? How can life be fearful if you're one with God? How can life be depressing if you're one with God? He brought us back to God. He brought us back into God through Christ and gave us. He handed it to you, the ministry of reconciliation. To minister something means it's your job to serve it to people. It's your job to pour it out. You're the pitcher that has the water. He's given you the ministry of reconciliation. Now, who had the ministry before you? Jesus, right? God reconciled the world through Christ. Now he gave you that ministry. So do you think he'll give you that ministry without the power? No, he'll give you the same, the same tools that Jesus had, you have. The same spirit Jesus had, he said, he said, I'm giving to you. He said to the disciples, you'll know the spirit You'll know him because he's already been with you. You knew him in me, but now you'll know him in you. And he said he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 19. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. So this is what God was doing through Jesus. He was bringing the world back to himself. You've got to think of the history of mankind as one giant thread, one long story. There's a lot of little tangents in it, but it really is one long story. If you think about the fact that Adam and Eve did not know separation from God like we knew until they sinned. Then there was a separation from God, from the plan of God, even from the garden that he had given them. But from that moment, it, it, I mean, it was mere Minutes, if maybe hours, after that sin, that God promised there will be a seed of this woman that will crush your head. There was a promise of Jesus right away. And the entire story, you look at the Israelites, you look, I mean, you, even before that, you look at Abraham, how God calls Abraham out of his, the land of his forefathers, out of the land of his, his ancestors, and calls him out and says, you're going to live in a special land. I'm bringing you to another land. You go, why did he do that to Abraham? Because Abraham was going to be the father of many nations. One of them was Israel. The rest of them was us. That through Abraham, God was going to call a people. Through those people, he was going to bring them out of slavery. He was going to guide them and protect them. And even when they went away, even when they sinned, he brought them back. And he brought us redemption through that nation. Then he brought us branches that were separated from those people and grafted us in through the blood of Jesus, adopted into that family. So when you're reading in the Old Testament and you go, why did God tell them to to wipe out whole nations next to them? You've got to understand it in the larger view. It wasn't that God is just mad at the other nations. It was that these nations, if they had been left, would have destroyed this nation. Of Israel. And if Israel was destroyed, there would be no redemption for all of mankind. God had to bring Jesus. Therefore, he had to have a people to bring him through, to show himself to, to reveal himself to the nations through, so that Jesus could come. And when he came, he'd bring us all into the family. All who would receive him, he brought in. So that's huge. And you think of it, this whole story, God has been, God has been working throughout history. To redeem mankind. It's not a forcible redemption. 
We understand in the scriptures that you have to make a choice. But thank God we have a choice. Thank God he's given us Jesus. And that ministry of reconciliation, bringing us back to God that we've been separated from for so long. He now gave you that ministry. He handed it to you and he said, here's what the ministry is. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, bringing the world back. Not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us. That means he's given it to you. He has handed it to you. He has put it in your mouth. The word of reconciliation. He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. It means he's given you the message that the world needs to hear. He has given you the ministry and he's committed you the word of reconciliation. As believers, now you say, is he just saying as apostles they have the word of reconciliation? Absolutely as apostles they do. But if we're to read what Jesus said before he left the earth, we all know we're all included in that. As disciples, we are all included in spreading this word of reconciliation, in ministering reconciliation to the world. You don't just get to lay that off on on a small segment of Christianity. No, that's on all of us. But that's cool. He's given us the word of reconciliation. What is the word of reconciliation? In verse 20, he says, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ. Have you ever thought that way? Have you ever felt that way when you're at the mall? Have you ever felt that way when you're with your family? Have you ever felt that way when you're at work? That I am pleading with someone on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. This is not for my points. This is not so I get another crown in heaven. Thank God, you probably will. That's not why you do it. I don't get this so I can go, you know, the church has got some chart in the back with stars for every new visitor we bring. That's not why we do it. And people catch on when you're doing it for that reason. They go, wait a second. You're just... I'm just another stat for you, aren't I? You ever notice that? Maybe, maybe before you got born again, people try to witness to you. There was somebody who was just like, okay, I got, I got this presentation. I'll, give me 30 seconds. I'll get it down. And it's like they're selling vacuum cleaners. You ever felt that way? And then there's somebody that looked in your eyes, and you felt they love me, and I don't know why they love me. This person loves me for some reason. And they, they're not looking at me like I'm, an, I'm one more score on the on the board. They're looking at me like I'm a person. Those are the people that you're going to win to the Lord. Because they're the people who got to see Jesus. Instead of a religion, instead of a doctrine, they got to see Jesus. Because that's how Jesus presented himself to these people. And we're going to see that in a moment. But I want to finish this chapter. He says, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. In verse 21. He made him who knew no sin the perfect sinless Lamb of God. He made him who knew no sin to be made sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's huge. Can I read verse 20 again? Because I think I skipped a little bit of it. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. Now, we've talked about this a lot in the past couple months, but think about that. God is making an appeal through us. Last week, we said, what would happen if God were to sit down with somebody and make his appeal to them? 
What would he say? How would they respond? He is and he wants to use you to do it. Doesn't that free you up? Doesn't that make it more exciting for you to just go out and just let him be used? And you know what? Leave the results to him. Let him worry about the results. Don't you think you have to just, you know, well, if I don't convert, I don't get the point. You know, just let him worry about that. You minister the gospel to them. You show them Jesus. You present them with the good news. You say be reconciled to God in however words that that comes out. You let him speak through you and you let him worry about how they handle it. They may not like it. I mean, they, they may they may get offended over something you didn't even intend. I pray that you go in the love of God and you're not a total jerk. That would be a bad thing. But if you let Jesus be Jesus, you won't be a jerk. Right? You just let him love them through you. Here's what it says. He made him and we made, knew no sin to be sent on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I'm just going to read the first verse in chapter 6, the first couple of verses. He says, and working together with him, we urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, at the acceptable time I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Now listen, he says, behold, look at this. Now is the acceptable time. Then he says it again. Behold, it must be important because he keeps telling us to look. You ever talk to somebody and they're not really paying attention? You're like, hey, hey, look. And then you say something and then they kind of wander again. Hey, look. I mean, in the Twitter generation, that happens a lot more now. You say, behold, now is the acceptable day. And then he says, behold, now is the day of salvation. What a thought that is. This is the day of salvation. God wants to save. He wants to save your friends. He wants to save your family. He wants to save your enemies. He wants to do it now. And thank God, we're the people who he gets to use. We're the people. We get to be used by God. How wonderful is that? Let's look in the book of Luke. If you can believe it, that was just a, a foundation for where we're really going tonight. I hope I, hope I didn't uh, take too long on 2 Corinthians 5. There were about three, four chapters in the book of Luke that um, the Lord's been bringing me to lately. And it really is interesting because... I, it's, there are a lot of the same themes that keep cropping up. Jesus seems to be going on to a new parable or a new story, but he, he even goes on to new cities. But in these three, four chapters, he's really on the same topics. And, and in chapter 15, where we'll start, we're not going to read all four chapters. Some of you had that look in your eye for a minute like, whoa, all right, call the babysitter. But that's not what we're doing tonight. Luke 15 Here's the theme of Luke 15. Something's lost, and Jesus came to find it. Now, we talk about people being lost all the time, don't we? Well, think about the lost. Lord, put a burden on me for the lost. We, we use that a lot, but you've got to realize when Jesus came around, people didn't think they were lost. There wasn't this thought, we're lost. There wasn't even a thought that we're going to hell. There wasn't that thought. Maybe the sinners thought, I'm in trouble, I don't know how to get out. But most of the religious people might have been, you know, preaching judgment and things like that. But really, the people that really needed to hear it, they thought they were fine. That was the problem. When they thought of the Messiah, they, they skipped over the parts where the Messiah would come and he'd, he'd 
you know, do some fixing. And they thought of the Messiah coming and just whipping up on the Romans like one big Rambo that was going to come and, you know, just step into, step into Judea and kick the invaders out. But he didn't do that. In fact, John the Baptist comes before Jesus, and what does he say? Repent. He says, prepare the way of the Lord. And people do it by the throngs. They come, they're baptized for repentance. They turn. Then he sees some religious people come. These people don't feel that they need to repent. They think they're doing great. They come along just because everybody else is doing it, and they feel that they need to be there to show, yes, yes, we're involved in the religious activities. If this man's here, we're going to make an appearance. And he looks at them, and I, and I look, John, just, you know, there's something that happens when a boy goes out after his, I mean, his parents were pretty old when he was born. So they probably died at a pretty young age for him. And it says that when he was a boy, he went out into the wilderness. So as soon as they died, he goes out into the wilderness and just grows up. So there's some social graces you don't learn in the wilderness. <laughs> and he, he goes, he goes, what are you doing here? He basically says, he goes, who warned you? Didn't you warn them? No. He goes, who warned you about the wrath to come? And he says, you brood of vipers. And he really gives them a tongue lashing. And he says, if you repented, bear fruits in accordance with repentance. And uh, the Pharisees kind of back up. But the rest of the people go, how? What do we do? And he says, well, the tax collectors, you only collect what you're supposed to collect. Uh, Soldiers, you do this. And he kind of gives them some things. Why? Because he says, I want you to prepare the way of the Lord. There's some things in your heart. There's some things in the way you've been thinking that, that you're not ready for the Messiah to come. You're not really ready for him to come. And really, I believe also John was sent to show them that they needed a Messiah. That, that uh, Until John came, they thought they were doing just great. But their hearts became straight. And valleys were lifted up. That means the, the dejected, poor people that just were rejected by society. He lifted them up. The mountains were made low. That's not as fun. The mountains were the religious elite that or anybody that was really proud, that that was proud in heart and wasn't poor in spirit that said, you know, I don't need anything. I don't need you. I I mean, we're doing good. We're we are God's greatest gift to God himself. We're his own gift. He bought himself a Christmas gift. It's us. Here we are. And he says every mountain will be made low to prepare a way of the Lord. We know that God wants you exalted, but of course, as James says, you've got to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you. Now, this is what it says in Luke 15. There are three stories told in Luke 15. We'll read through them fairly quickly because um, you can go back and study them on your own and spend more time, but we're just going to give you a brief overview of them. Luke 15, verse 1 says, Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. That's interesting, isn't it? The tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, The man receives sinners and he eats with them. This is what happens when a bunch of people come in the back door of the church and you no longer feel safe with your purse at your feet. You no longer feel safe um, leaving your car unlocked because, oh, those people showed up. But Jesus welcomes them. In fact, he eats with them and receives them. 
He told this parable to them, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? Now, the ninety-nine are in open pasture. No, they're not walking around on cliffs precariously about to fall to their deaths. They're safe. He might have even left a sub-shepherd just to make sure. They said, but they're fine. They're in open pasture. But he goes and he finds the one. When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he has come home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found the sheep which was lost. I tell you, in that same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, here's the thought. When he says 99 righteous persons, do you actually believe the people he's talking about are righteous? Probably not. Because it says that there was none righteous, no, not one. Now, Jesus, it says that all our righteousness is as filthy rags. But the problem is because they believe they're righteous. In Romans 10, it says, Paul is, 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 is praying for his brothers, and he goes, here's the problem. They think they're so righteous that they won't get righteous. He says, they think they're so righteous, having pursuing their own righteousness, they won't submit to the righteousness of God. Because they think they can do it on their own, they're not letting Jesus do it for them. Therefore, they're perishing. But he says this in the next verse. Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which was lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. There's a thought here that people are lost, and when they're found, something happens. The, the word repent means to I mean, the literal Greek word means to change your mind, to, to turn your mind. So there's a thought here when you repent that, that you've, there's been a shift. And, and it probably started out as an inner shift. You probably shifted your mind. You turned your eyes the right way. You turned your eyes towards him. He did a work in you. And when that thing happens inwardly, it manifests outwardly. When there's a repentance in here, it comes out here. So these people have, when they're found, they... This is how it, when Jesus came and he, he finds the lost people, here's how we know they were found. They came, they repented, they turned. There was a change in their life. So now they're not lost anymore. Now they're found. Isn't this a, an interesting thought that the world is full of people that he considers lost? That means that they were created not to be lost. They were created in his image, in his likeness. But through this, this, the curse on the earth, through the sinful nature that we're born into, they've been lost. Who they really are is not there. They've become something other than they were created to be. That's why they're lost. But something happens when Jesus comes. They're found. And that being found brings repentance. They're now the type of people, they're, they're, they're the people that Jesus died for, but now, now they're alive again. In fact, the next verse, he says, a man had two sons, the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. 
Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went out and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his field to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I'm dying here with hunger. Now there's endless books and great sermons preached on this parable, and I won't spend the time really diving into it that it deserves, but you can study that on your own. This is a powerful parable. We see two sons. We see one that goes off and squanders everything that God has given him, everything his father has given him. He uses it on the wrong things. He, 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 he loses it, before, I mean, before he even should have had it. But he comes to his senses when everything goes wrong. You ever wonder what that looks like in real life? What a person looks like at that state? Because I've come, I, we've all run into several of them. I've run into I don't know how many conversations with people who are at that point. They're at the point where they go, I wish I could eat what the pigs are eating. They're at, as many therapists would call it, rock bottom. What's interesting is this is a point of turning for a lot of people. If you're too afraid to touch them because they smell like pigs, they're not going to hear what you have to say. But God brings us to these people. God brings us to these people who have thrown away their life, have lived in the mud, lived with the pigs. God brings us to these people and says, I love them, I want them back, committed to us the word of reconciliation. And you can go through life and look for the people that you say, boy, if they got saved, they'd be a help in our children's department. Boy, if they got saved, boy, wouldn't they be good in the music team? Or you can just say, look, I'm, I know that in 1 Corinthians 1, it says God took people who were nothing and made them something. So I'm not going to look for the people that are going to translate naturally to Christianity. And thank God, he, he'll send you to those people too. God is not a respecter of persons. But I really believe that a lot of times when people are at that point where everything's really, I mean, they're just fresh spending that inheritance, a lot of times they're not going to listen to you. You preach it anyways. You tell them anyways. But a lot of times those aren't the people that are listening to you because those are the people that figure they've already got it together. But God sends us to these total rejected losers that have found out this was not what I thought it was. And they come to their senses. How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I'm dying here with hunger. Boy, isn't that hunger? I mean, I, God did not create us to, to be famished, to experience the great pains of hunger. But boy, that hunger. When you are without him, thank God for that hunger. Thank God for the hunger that tells you, I don't have what I need. Because if not for that hunger, you would not come to the table. Thank God that he awakened your spirit and said, you don't have what you think you have. Like he said to the church in Laodicea, you think you're rich, but you're poor. You think you have nice clothes, but you're naked. You think you're well fed, but you're doing without. You think you can see, but you're blind. Say, God, why, Jesus, why are you so hard on these people? Why are you, why are you insulting them in front of everybody? Because of what he says after that. Therefore, come to me, 
and buy gold from me, refined by fire. So the time, I, he, then he says, come for me, get, get clothes for me. He says, get food for me. He says, get salve for your eyes that you may see. He gives them all of these things. It's the same thing in Isaiah 55. He says, come to me, buy food without cost. Come to me. Why do you go to the things that aren't feeding you? Why do you go to the things that aren't satisfying you? Come to me. So you may say, oh, that hunger is a terrible thing, but thank God for it. Thank God that there are people on this planet that are hungry for God. I'm not talking about people starving from food. I'm talking about hungry for God. And you know what? We think that people are hungry for God. When I say, are you hungry for God? What do you picture? I mean, most of the time, if you're anything like me, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put myself in this example. I picture people that are born again, that are at the altar saying, I want more of you. Have you ever considered there are people that are hungry for God, but they don't know they're hungry for God? They're hungry for something, but they don't know what it is. And until you come and visit that person and touch them and give them a taste so that they can taste and see that the Lord is good, they won't know what they're hungry for. They'll just know I'm hungry and they'll try to fill it with everything. Drugs, alcohol, possessions, everything, sex, whatever. They'll try to fill it. But you can give them a taste of what they're really looking for. Here's what it says. He says, I will go, get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him. Ran and embraced and kissed him. In front of, probably in front of, you know, people that he should have been embarrassed to go and embrace this young man. But he wasn't. He loved him. He ran up, embraced him and kissed him kissed his dirty, stinky, piggy face. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. There's significance to all of that, but for the sake of time, we'll just kind of breeze through it. Bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. Did you hear that? This son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. See, those two come together. Lost and dead, found and alive. They go together. Can you imagine? This is what we're doing. This is the gospel we've been given. The ministry of reconciliation brings dead people back to life. It brings the lost back to a place where they are now perpetually found. In fact, there's another verse that echoes this at the end, but it really brings it out even clearer. His older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing, and he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, your, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I've been serving you, and I've never neglected a command of yours. And yet you've never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you've always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice. 
For this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live. Oh, I love that. Listen to that. Just, just let that phrase ring in you for a minute. Your brother was dead and has begun to live. Have you looked in the eyes of somebody that just got born again? Isn't that a fun feeling? Make some friends. I mean, you know what? Even better. Go lead people to the Lord. Then hang out with them. Well, you can hang out with them before then. That's probably how you'll lead them to the Lord. But spend some time with new believers. They keep you fresh. Because you look in their eyes and you look at somebody who has begun to live. And there's that wonderful feeling. Do you know? They look at you like you're crazy when you don't get excited over the smallest thing. You know, they kind of shake you like, what are you, I mean, have you, are you asleep? Don't you realize? I've told you this several times, but, you know, Brent and I really got on fire, totally sold out for God around the same time. And, and I'll never forget the trip to Sylvan Lake. But we're talking about the word, you know, I, I've been, I've been in, I've been in the church a little bit longer than Brent had, but you know, we're spurring each other on, but you know, I, I constantly learn stuff from Brent. He constantly learns stuff from me. It's not like one was teaching the other. It was just like back and forth. You need friends like that. It was just, you know, iron sharpening iron, but you know how sometimes God gives you a revelation of something and you just expect that everybody at the same time is getting that. And I remember being in the seat and, uh, <laughs> We're in those, like, captain's chairs in a minivan. And, you know, we're talking about how, how good God is and things like that. And we're, we're also getting excited for the water slides, too, i got to admit. And, and all of a sudden, I feel this hand just grab me violently almost, you know, quickly. And he goes, John, the word, John, the word. And I'm like, what do I say to that, you know? Is that a call and response? Do I say, is true, Brent is true, or, or do I just go, yeah? I mean, but at that moment, it was so real to him. And I love that. When you hang out with uh, new believers, too, there's that feeling. You know, Brent wasn't a new believer, but, but we felt like new believers. And, and I want to feel like a new believer every day. I can mature to the place where I'm growing in Christ. I'm not naive and, and I've learned things and I've grown closer to him, but I want that freshness all the time, the newness of life that he promises where every day I'm just going to wake up and go, this is amazing. If you don't have that, hang out with people who do because you look in their eyes and you go, this is somebody that's begun to live. Let's skip a, a couple chapters ahead to Luke 18. Because in Luke 18, we run across two different people. Not just two, but we're going to focus on two. Sorry, Luke 18 and 19. We'll start in Luke 18, though. Luke 18, we find the rich young ruler. Now, the rich young ruler is in the class of people who does feel he's got it all together. He figures he's got it. He figures he's been doing everything right. The ruler questioned him. This is verse 18 of chapter 18. Saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Why would he say that to that man? He's already trying to shape his mind. All right, no one's good but God alone. He's already setting the stage for what's about to come. Now, now I, once again, there have been people way more qualified than me that have written books and taught great sermons about this, 
We're not going to spend a lot of time on this, so I don't want you to be going, he missed that point. There's a point he could make. You know, we'll, we'll just kind of breeze through it fairly quickly. But he says this. Do you not know the commandments? Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus doesn't call him out on that. He just, you know, lets the man speak for himself. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor. And you shall have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Ouch. Well, first of all, there's, there's a lot of stuff going on here. Why Jesus would tell him to do that. First of all, those possessions have him. He doesn't have those possessions. Because if Jesus tells you to give something away and you can't give it away, you're a slave. You're serving that as a master. If there's anything in your life you say, I don't think I could give that away, give it away as fast as you can. Do it right now. We've said that before. I'd encourage you just to make a note. Say, I'm giving away that car. <laughs> because if, if I get to the point where I can't give it away, I'm not telling you to all give away your cars. You know, God needs to speak to you. But if I'm getting to the point where I can't give it away, it's got me. And this man probably, you know, he's a rich young ruler, right? What does that mean? He's in charge of some people and some things. So he can't just leave and follow Jesus, can he? He has to stay with the, his, his land. He has to stay with his people. He can't leave. He's a ruler. So there's a practical application to this. If this man's going to follow Jesus, he has to leave this other stuff behind. Jesus said, now's the time to dance. I, I played the flute for you and you didn't dance. I mean, if you're going to follow me, you've got three years to do it. There's going to be time after this. You could, we follow Jesus, right? But those who followed him in his life had to leave everything and say, I'm going to follow this man wherever he goes. The fishermen left their boats. The tax collectors left their tables. And this man needed to leave his lands. And instead of just leaving it to rot, he was meant to sell it, give it away to the poor, then you'll be free to follow me. But he wouldn't do it. He heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich, so he could not let it go. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard is it for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier that for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Spent a lot of teaching on this. Some would say that the eye of the needle was a gate in Jerusalem that the camels couldn't go in without first unloading and getting down on the knees and going through. Some would say he's just making a metaphor about a literal eye of a needle. Either way, we won't focus on that right now. You can study that. You can talk about that. We'll talk about it later. But what he says next is what's really important because they who heard it said, then who can be saved? Now listen, whether he's making a metaphor or whether he's talking about a literal gate in Jerusalem, Here's the point. He says the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. So lest you say, well, that's it. Rich people can't get born again. He says all things are possible with God. But what they're going to have to do is humble themselves. What they're going to have to do is, is I mean, if, if those riches have them, they got to give it away. I mean, not everybody who gets saved as a rich person has to give everything away, but you have to humble yourself and start out as a new baby. Start out at, at just at the base of the kingdom. One of the problems with our society, and we won't spend much time on this, but as soon as a celebrity gets saved, we have them speaking at conferences everywhere. They're not ready for that. You've got to start out as a baby. And that's, that really almost destroyed Christianity for a time. The emperor got born again. Or said he did. We don't know if he did or not, but he said he did. 
And what happened, what should have happened is that Emperor Constantine should have been able to come in that back door and listen like everybody else and say amen like everybody else and grow as a new believer. But what really happened is he says, well, I'm the emperor, so now I'm the emperor of your church too. Now I get to be the boss of the church. Oh, and my mama, my mother, she's, she's, do you know she has a wonderful gift? She just got born again too. I did? You did. Okay. <laughs> We're going to call her a saint now, St. Helena. She, she will tell you where Jesus died, right here. He rose right here. And everybody who looks at those places in real life goes, what? That doesn't make any... It, the place, that Golgotha, that looks like a skull, that, that hill over there looks really like a skull. No, 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 my mom said it's over here. Here's where it is. All that to say, we all start out as babies. You've got to humble yourself, take off your coat, and put his on. You've got to take off your name and let him give you a name. And this is what... This is what the rich man should have did, but he didn't. But Jesus says the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. Now, let's skip for a minute to chapter 19. This is where we're going to round everything up. Chapter 19, he entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. Now, notice he's a chief tax collector. He's not just a tax collector. They're already slimy people. Most of you already know this, but for those of you that might not, the reason the tax collectors were so disdained was because the Romans didn't want to collect their own taxes. They realized that might not go over well, but they really do like their taxes. And what they're going to do is they're going to send, they're going to recruit as many locals as they can, or if somebody will volunteer from the job, they'll send them to Judea. They'll send them to the provinces and collect. Zacchaeus, I believe, is a local guy. Matthew was a local guy, one of the disciples. But Zacchaeus and all the other tax collectors, here's how they made their money worth it, is when you collect, Rome says, listen, just give me what what's we, we've got coming to us, and you can collect. If you need to collect more, we'll look the other way. We won't make a big deal out of it. So it became a nice thing to be a tax collector because you can make a lot of money. You say, taxes today are this much. And they have to give it to you. They can't argue with you. You're representing Rome. So much of that is for Rome and then the rest of it's for you. Now, Zacchaeus is not just a tax collector. He's a chief tax collector, which means he's got a bunch of, I mean, he's like a mob boss. He's got a bunch of tax collectors under him. And you know what? It's not like today where there's different grades of taxes, where there's like, here's their tax level. Everybody got smacked. Um, If you were poor, Deal with it. Your kids will go hungry before the emperor will go without that new bath. So all of these guys are, are robbing the poor. They're, 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 they're oppressing these people. And you know what? This region was doing pretty well during this time. It, it, was, it was doing pretty well. And so he was very rich because he wasn't just a tax collector. He was getting a, percentage, a cut from what all his other tax collectors got. So this dude's a slime ball. Nobody likes him. On, the, on top of that, he's weird. He's a weird little short guy that thinks, <laughs> thinks nothing of climbing up in a tree. A grown man, and I use that term loosely because he seemed only half grown, but a, a fully mature man climbing up in a tree so we can see the guy passing by. 
this is not your normal social behavior. He's probably not really welcome at the coffee shop. So, he's in Jericho, and Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was. That's all he's trying to do, is see who Jesus was. I don't think he even knew who Jesus was. Now, he, he might have heard some scuttlebutt about Bartimaeus. That had kind of reached its way to Jericho. But at this point, he doesn't know who Jesus was. He's trying to see who he is. He just knows there's a crowd. So he gets up on a tree. Now, when he gets up in the tree, he might realize, oh, that's Jesus. I've heard about him. I don't know what's going through his head. But it says, Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed into a sycamore tree in order to see him. For he was about to pass through that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, hold on for a minute. When I read this, when I heard about this as a kid, I always pictured that Jesus was preaching Zacchaeus was in a tree listening. Zacchaeus believed. And Jesus said, I'm coming to your house. But that didn't happen. Jesus is just walking down the street. Zacchaeus didn't hear a message. He didn't hear a sermon. He probably didn't know what to believe. All of a sudden, Jesus looks up to him, knows his name. That's going to freak you out already. But Jesus does these kind of things. Remember John 4? He goes up to the woman at the well, tells her all about her life. Now watch this. He knew who he was. And I've noticed this throughout the Gospels. You you notice Jesus knows who people are, and he knows their dirt. He knows the gross stuff too. And yet he doesn't bring it up. I mean, it comes up. Jesus brought it up with a woman. He said, you know, you have a... But he didn't... It wasn't the first thing he said. It It wasn't the point of his message. His point of his message was drink from the eternal life. I've got living water for you. He didn't say, you need... You know what? Girl, you've been living with that man. You need to drop that man. He didn't say any of that. He just said, drink of me. I've got living water. You need it. You need it. And then he tells her about her life. And that proved to her that he was who he said he was. When she went back to the city, she goes, he told me everything about me. That was the proof to her. Now, I don't think this is just Jesus that does this. We know that the scripture talks about Men and women like you and me that God is going to give words of knowledge to. I believe you're walking down the mall. You'll know stuff that God tells you. Not so that you can, you know, uh, gossip. Not so that you can embarrass somebody, but so that you can show them that God knows them and has already seen stuff. They're not having to hide from God. Just like Adam's saying, I'm hiding from you. And God says, where are you? God knows where they are. He knows where they've been. And he still says, I want you reconciled. So Jesus looks up at Zacchaeus. He picks the biggest loser. He pick, and, and I'm not talking about weight loss. I mean, he picks the biggest doofus that nobody likes. I mean, the outcast that has made enemies out of everybody. He looks up into the tree and says, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house. He invites himself to dinner. Who does that? Jesus, apparently. He says... Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. Listen to this. For today, I must stay at your house. Hear that? There's not a, I'd like to stay, I'd like to have dinner with you. He says, I must stay at your house. Now, this is the kind of imperative that I believe God is putting on our hearts right now. That we're going to walk through 
Lloydminster. We're going to walk through Loon Lake. We're going to walk through the provinces we inhabit. We're going to walk through life, and God is going to give us people, put people in our path that you don't have the option of passing by. I don't care who they are. Well, you say, I must talk to you. I've got to have dinner with you. I've got to stay at your house. Who says that? I must hurry up and come down here. Like, quick. How important does this seem to Jesus? Because obviously God has just given him a directive. And Jesus doesn't go, that guy? Really? He says, I don't do anything unless the Father tells me to do. So who told him to do that? The Father. The Father loved Zacchaeus enough to tell Jesus, you're staying at his house. And Jesus says, Zacchaeus, hurry up and come down here. This is important. I've got to stay at your house. Now, if we'd have that kind of passion, and I believe you do, I believe God's putting it inside you, but if we'd have that kind of passion of the things that God puts on our heart, no matter how weird it sounds, no matter how crazy it is, and just say, I have to obey the Lord above anything else, Jesus knew this wasn't going to make him any friends. Jesus already knew people were gossiping about him. And this was only going to heighten it. But he had to do what the father said. Hurry up, man. Hurry and come down. I've got to stay at your house. Verse 6. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. Now when that means he received him gladly, that's, that's the part where he takes him into his home. He puts food in front of him. He receives him gladly. That's a big step, isn't it? What's going through Zacchaeus' mind? Why does he want me? How does he know me? And why does he want me? Those are two questions that the world asks when you really show them Jesus. How do you know me? And why do you want me? I don't know how many people have looked in their eyes. You know this too, because you've probably seen the same thing. You've looked in their eyes, their lower lip is quivering. And what they want to know is, why Why are you doing this for me? And when you say something crazy like, I love you, they go, they're fighting a battle between the, the voice inside them that says, no one could love you. This is just a scam. To the other voice that wants to believe that somebody loves them. You say, I love you because Jesus loves you. How many people, you guys encountered this? You may have been this person. They go, why, how do you know me? And why do you want me? Wow. That's what the world is looking for. You know what? You just, just leave your assumptions about what they're doing. Leave your distaste for what they've done. Leave it at the door for a minute. Let God handle that stuff. God will handle that stuff. Your job is to show them Jesus. And you're going to get those questions. How do you know me and why do you want me? Well, you know when you're asked those questions, God is doing something big. Here's what he says. When they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Like it's contagious and it's going to get on him. And he's going to sleep in that bed and he's going to wake up wanting to just steal and, and, and get drunk and all of this. They're already accusing him of being a drunkard. And Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. If I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. Now, do some math in your head. 
He's already given half of his possessions away. He's, he's promising to give half possessions away. And from the other half, he's paying back four times what he stole. You think there's a lot left for that guy? On the surface, no. But Jesus didn't demand this of him. Being with Jesus brought that out in him. All of a sudden, he goes, something's changing. This is the fruit. This is what you see in people's lives who've been with Jesus. They change. They change. You know when Jesus has touched somebody's life because things change. Thank God they change. And this is what happens. You know, see, here we see the two sides of Jesus. Well, no, there's not two sides of Jesus. We see all of Jesus here because he accepts this man. And yet this man doesn't leave the same. He accepts him. He loves him for who he is. But he doesn't stay that way. Just like that adulterous woman who Jesus saves from death, saves from a stoning. He accepts her. He, sh- he forgives her right off the bat. Then he says, go and sin no more. People come as they are. and They don't stay as they are. God works on them. That's a beautiful thing. He says, I, I will give back four times as much as I have stolen. And Jesus said to him, today, salvation has come to this house. This is the day of salvation. Because he too is a son of Abraham. What does that mean? Now he's been rejected by all those who say they're the sons of Abraham. He, he seems like a traitor to his own people. But Jesus says he's a son of Abraham. Why? Because Jesus said, here's what the sons of Abraham will do. They'll receive me. When, they said, when the other said, we're sons of Abraham, he says, no, you're not. Because if you were, you would have received me. John the Baptist says, you guys say that Abraham is your father, and yet, look at you. You're not bearing the fruit of someone who's the son of Abraham. So here he says, he looks at him and goes, this guy is the son of Abraham. Why? Because he believed in me. And here's what it says. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. So here we are. Here's a man who was lost, unrecognizable from what God had created him to be. What did Jesus do? He sought him out. Now, I think these two parts, and this is what we're going to close with the thought, is that in our life, we've been given the same ministry of Jesus, right? The Son of Man came to seek and to save. These are two parts to our life, seeking the lost and bringing them salvation through Jesus Christ. So think about that. What, sometimes the saving part we got. We know how to do that. But the seeking part, how did Jesus show the seeking part? He went out and found the guy. Invited himself over. He didn't wait for the... I mean, the man came to see who he was. True. But he didn't wait for the man to show up at synagogue. He went and found him. Pointed him out. Brought him out. Said, I'm coming to your house. So here's the thing. God has put this ministry in us. He's put this ministry on us. He's given us the word of reconciliation. And you've got to understand that there are lost people all around us. We know that. You know that. They change when they're found. There are dead people and they change when they're alive. Don't go looking for people 
that already look what you, like what you think they should look like. Go looking for the people that need him right now, that know they need him, that are under no illusions. I need him right now. Now, see, God will, God will send you to everybody. I'm not alienating anybody. But I'm saying there are people God's going to send you to that have been rejected, left out by society, that seem like the, the last people that would ever listen to what you have to say. But those are often the people who are at their end, who are saying, I, I could, I mean, the pigs are eating better than me, who are now ready to come to their senses. And what they need is somebody who's going to come with the word of the Lord. Zacchaeus, can you imagine what he's been going through up to this point? Imagine what that man has been thinking, the guilt that's been on him, the alienation. He's been pressed outside of his society. He's been, everybody's been pushing him to the fringe. He's, he's not only just a strange person, but he's, he's also a traitor to their people. Can you imagine what he goes home at night and thinks? And I imagine at some point he goes, I can't keep going on like this. God sends Jesus. And Jesus spends a, like a little bit of time with him. And already this man is ready to flip around. Go over and above what the law demanded. Go over and above what Jesus asked of him. Because we don't even see evidence of Jesus say, asking him to do anything. But time with Jesus changed this man. I believe this is... This is the day of salvation. As, as Jesus said to his disciples, look, the fields are ripe. They're ready for harvest. What are we supposed to pray? Pray that the Lord of the harvest will send laborers into the field. Pray that I can be one of those. Pray that God sends laborers with us. We want to be the laborers that go into the fields and find them and bring them back. But you know, that's not always going to be on a stage, on a platform at some event. Most of the time, that's going to be in life, just you going out into the world. Jesus was not having a ministry event. He wasn't having a sermon on the mount. He was walking down the street. And it was an inconvenient time to talk to that man. He's with all these people. And he stops he points him out and he says, hurry up. I have to stay at your house. Would we have that type of passion and obedience that we can say, I've got to talk to that person. Thank God. It's a good gospel. It's a wonderful life. I'm not quoting a movie. It's wonderful life to be loved and to be known by him. The gospel is so good, it doesn't need dressing up. Jesus is so beautiful, he doesn't need makeup. <laughs> he doesn't need your fancy talk. He doesn't need your special, special super-duper training. He just needs somebody who will let him speak on his behalf. He will let somebody make an appeal through them. Let's be those people. Amen? Seek and save. Father, we just glorify you this evening. May you be exalted in our lives. May you be glorified. God, I say this honestly and from the depths of my heart. Instill in us, instill in us a desire for the kingdom to expand. Instill in us, God, you love through us. You don't just have to 
to show us love. You, you, you love through us. And I ask you, Lord, love through us. Walk through us. Breathe in us. That that river of living water would come out at the most inconvenient of times. That we would be able to be exactly who we've been created to be. We are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. We are the sons and daughters of the living God. We are the bondservants of Jesus Christ. We are the ones called by your name, committed to the word of reconciliation. We are the ones who you've handed your ministry to. And Father, I want to love with your love. I want to speak with your mouth. I believe everyone in this room feels the same way. So send us out, God. Speak to us at the strangest of times. But whenever you want us to move, tell us to move. And God, we make this covenant with you right now that we will. Don't do that lightly, friends. Don't do that lightly. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. But if you will let God if you will let Jesus make His appeal through you, if you're willing to let yourself be made a fool at times, be perhaps misunderstood at times, but used and a vessel that God can use for His glory and honor, then just right now make that commitment to Him that you will say yes the next moment you're called upon. If you'll volunteer, the missions will come. If you volunteer, he'll, he'll say, this is your mission should you choose to accept it. What I want you to do right now is say, yes, Lord, I will accept the call. I will accept the next time you move me, I'm going to go. The next time you breathe on me, I am going to do exactly what you tell me to do. Don't be surprised if this comes more often than you'd expect. And Father, I ask right now that you would that you'd give us the, uh, the freshness, the, 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 the joy of the gospel, the joy of this new life. God, that it wouldn't be a chore that we had to do or a, a, a some sort of duty that we had to do as Christians. But God, that we would have the, just the, the joy uh, that you carried around with you, that you would anoint your servants with the joy of gladness, that we'd have that love of the good news, that we'd want to share it, not feel like we just have to share it, but we'd want to share your gospel. We'd want to see the lost found. We'd want to see the, the, the dead live again. In Jesus' name. And God, we thank you for that. Thank you for these people. Now, friends, I don't want you to be under condemnation for what you haven't done. Because if you stay focused on what you haven't done, you'll never do anything. Leave that behind. Forget what lies behind. If, if up to this point you've been too embarrassed, if up to this point you've been too afraid, can you just leave that right now and let God handle it? You stop focusing on that every time. Don't make your failures the motivation for what you do. You just say, Lord, take me right now from this point on. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to say yes. And I'll never say no again. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, you've heard the prayers. You've heard our, our words. And Father, I ask that you would uh, help us because you are the helper. Holy Spirit, we invite you to revolutionize, direct, and guide our lives. 
so that we will no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us and rose on our behalf. In Jesus' name, amen.